podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi, I'm TJ Perkins, otherwise known as the Cruiser Great, otherwise known as the Hill M Flash, and you're listening to Eat Sleep Suplex Region. Hello everybody, my name's Stephen Wilson and welcome to this latest interview for Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. And today I am pleased to be joined by a man who needs no introduction. He is a former TNA X Division champion, a former WWE Cruiserweight champion, and a man who bested 31 other wrestlers to win the WWE Cruiserweight Classic in 2016. I'm joined by TJ Perkins. TJ, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You for, you forgot Southpaw Regional Wrestling Champion, though. That's maybe my proudest accomplishment. <laughs> How are you today, TJ? I'm doing all right. How are you? Yes, I'm very good. Very good. It's good that we fight. We managed to arrange this with a seven-hour time difference, but it's all good anyway, all good. Manufacturing magic. It's what we do. <laughs> Absolutely. So... Just a bit of housekeeping before we start, if you want to listen to anything else that we do here at Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, just search for us on any good podcasting sites to search Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. And if you want to follow us on any of our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, we are at Suplex Retweet. Right, enough of that, let's get talking. So TJ, you ready to go? Yeah. What do you want to get into first? Well, here's a question that I like to ask or we sorry at suplex retweet like to ask all the people we interview what was it that got you into wrestling and why do you love wrestling oh gosh some of these days i feel maybe i must have had a head injury to get me into wrestling because it's <laughs> kind of crazy looking back why i want to put myself through this but uh i don't know i mean like anybody else i think that uh you know i was obviously a fan growing up my earliest memories uh, when I was, yeah, I guess what you guys would say, a wee one. Uh, when <laughs> I was like two, <laughs> when I was like two or three years old, I'd sit around with my dad and we'd watch uh, Saturday Night's main event, the WWF show at the time. And mm-hmm. th- those are my earliest memories, and, and that's uh, that's uh, some of my earliest bonding experiences with my dad. So you know, I just grew up, grew up loving it. Mm-hmm. Who was your idol back at that point in time? Oh, well, I was born in '84, so I'm, I was really an '80s kid, mm-hmm. and I wasn't. I got into NWA and WCW like later on in life. So as far as contemporary at the time, I was always like a WWF kid. So, you know, I liked Hogan, I liked Piper, I liked Macho. I really loved Jake the Snake. I actually just did like an 80s centric podcast recently where I was talking about uh, a lot of these guys. And that, that's that's really kind of what I grew up on, you know, the Million Dollar Man and, and things like that. That era was really what I, what I kind of grew up on. Yeah, that type of larger-than-life characters that it was back then. Yeah, yeah. I remember really, really, you know, I was, I was pretty big on Jake, and I was pretty big on The Ultimate Warrior. Uh, those were kind of two of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Now, one other thing we'll go into is uh, you liked wrestling that much. You obviously started training, and you trained. You started training tr- quite young. You trained at the, started training at the age of 13. Uh, yeah, yeah. What was it that made you... You went to a Lucha Libre school, I believe, in L.A. What was it that made you choose that school, and what made you make that transition from fan to wrestler? Well, I always kind of knew I would be wrestling, and I, I don't know why I thought that. It just it, it really absorbed my life Like when I was younger. Uh, everything was wrestling, mm-hmm. and I thought, and I don't know, maybe I was just an idiot as a kid. I'm kind of an idiot now as an adult, but <laughs> <laughs> I thought everybody loved wrestling the same way that I did. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought everybody's going to grow up to be a wrestler. We're all going to be wrestlers. Like that's just how I thought. Like I knew damn well that there were doctors and other stuff in the world, but for some reason I just thought, no, everybody's going to be a wrestler. And so, I don't know, when I was about 11 or 12, I was starting to get old enough to kind of understand okay, well, there has to be some sort of career path, you know, because then you're in school and then your teachers around that age are starting to tell you, you know, about going to college and stuff that you're going to have to start preparing for the future. And um, mm. I thought I would have to do amateur wrestling. So I thought, okay, here's my plan. When I get to high school in a couple of years, I'm going to wrestle amateur. And then afterward, I'll find my way to professional wrestling because it'll just happen. Uh, you know, I didn't know how it worked. I just thought that that is how it would work. Right. And so I chose the gym that I chose because when I came in to start high school, when I was uh, 13, I came in over the summer and, you know, my dad had me playing all sports growing up. He wanted me to go to college for scholarships. I, you know, I played football, basketball, baseball, everything. And uh, I asked them about their amateur wrestling program and they didn't have one because that that's really what I wanted to do. So I started writing because this was like 1998. So like for, I guess, you know, for whoever's listening, like depending on what age you are, the world was very different at that time in regards to like, because like the internet wasn't what it is today. It almost didn't exist. Like Mm -hmm. there was no social media. There was nothing, no Facebook, no MySpace, no YouTube, no Google, nothing. And so I wrote physical letters to like, training gyms I would see in like Pro Wrestling Illustrated and stuff like that. So there's only a handful of those. I'd write to these places throughout the country and kind of ask them for information. You need to be like 18 or 21 years old. You know, obviously these places are in different parts of the country and I couldn't relocate or anything like that. I was just a kid. So I didn't know what I would do. I just inquired about all these places and uh, there was a, a student at my school who was a couple years, I think, older than me, and he was really into wrestling, and he was in the same gym that I would start at that year, and that's how I kind of learned that there's there is some other places that are kind of underground sort of places, you know, and being in LA, that's the beauty of that region. Like, there's a lot of Mexican wrestling culture, so there's a lot of those gyms around. They're just not advertised, and it's not really a proper business. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the way the culture is is same with, like, you know, boxing. If you're old enough to put the gloves on, they'll put you in the ring. So, you know, mm-hmm. in my case, if you're old enough to, to wrestle or if you're old enough to walk, basically, they'll teach you how to wrestle. So they let me do it. And here I am 20, 20 years or so later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know where the time went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have, you have been on quite a journey. Some of the things that one of the things I see when I was doing my research that struck to me, I believe for you, this Correct me if my facts are slightly wrong here. Were you the youngest non-Japanese wrestler to ever appear at Korakin Hall? Uh, let's see. There's a number of those type of records, I think, that I have in regards to that. And they all kind of came at once just because of the way my age was. Because New Japan recruited me at like 17. So mm. I was still in my last year of high school. But I had been wrestling professionally for three or four years at that time. Mm. So I was... I would kind of just leave after school or like over the summer once I graduated, I was in the dojo that they set up in Los Angeles every day. And then as soon as I turned 18, they gave me my proper visa and a contract and said, okay, you go to Japan. And it just worked out because the tour that they wanted me to go ahead and start on was only a couple weeks after my birthday. So, and the first show was at Corican. So immediately after turning 18, 
like as soon as they could process that paperwork i was there i was at corkin i did the tour and then uh like six months later i want to say in may i did a tokyo dome show so i think corkin the tokyo dome and i think just new japan itself i'm the youngest foreigner to to do all of that i feel like there has to be somebody that came along that was close or maybe younger but it would be kind of tight because it was only a couple weeks after my birthday so they definitely must have saw something in you because there was they gave you the was it the puma gimmick something that came up uh, followed you quite a lot oh, in your career yeah yeah, yeah, that came up um, after the first few initial tours. I don't know, it was weird. Everybody saw something different in me, and I think that, I don't know, I guess in retrospect, it, maybe that's a testament to my education in wrestling, because I, I always tried to, uh, I never worked out in any one gym. I would just see whoever had a gym, I would go there. So I was training all the time, mm-hmm. everywhere. And um, man, I'd be in the ring sometimes like six, seven hours a day in multiple gyms whatever I can get my hands on. So when I was at New Japan, I remember the director one time was taking a look at us working out in the ring and he was like, wow, this kid is like Rey Mysterio Jr. And then another representative from New Japan at a different time was watching me and they're like, oh, he's just like Tiger Mask. But it's I was just doing stuff that I'd learned and I'd learned a lot of different styles. That's kind of how Puma came up is because a lot of them saw that I had kind of an affinity for Sayama, the, the original type your mask and so i kind of moved a little bit like him and i I think to this day i have a problem with sometimes being a little too soft in the ring because i i can i can make things look pretty smooth but sometimes it's a little bit soft (laughs) and uh, that was something that sayama had he had that kind of muhammad ali type of movement whereas everything just looks so fluid and i always love that about him yeah i mean that what you said there i mean you're not even 20 year old at this point in time and people are comparing you to tiger mask and Rey mysterio jr that must have have been quite an honor I think because, you know, at that time, like there wasn't, again, like the world and the way social media is now, like there wasn't a whole lot of integration and crossover platforming for like styles, you know, Mm -hmm. at that time, like Europe was still Europe and Mexico was still Mexico. Japan was, you know, they they were all still kind of separated. If if you were crossing over and traveling, then you either got a very lucky opportunity or you were doing something really notable. Now guys are crossing over and it's everything is all the same like everybody's doing all kinds of different styles it's come so far but at the time it was more primitive so i mean i don't know that i was anywhere near ray but i think they just saw me do you know head scissors and certain things that they don't normally see and they're like oh wow this is what this kid is about but then they would see me do some other stuff that i picked up and they're like oh wow that's what this kid is about and Mm -hmm. i don't think it was that i was great at any one thing but i was just really good at a lot of different stuff so mm-hmm. yeah definitely and as your career went on you developed your style a bit more differently so one of the things looking back on your work over in the independence over the years you, you, you look to have spent seem to have spent a great amount of time wrestling at a uh, pro wrestling gorilla now we've not really hearing suplex retweet being obviously being british we've not really had the chance to speak to many people who have wrestled in the American Legion Hall, which a lot of people describe as like an independent version of like Madison Square Garden. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, is, that, is that an overstatement at all or is it something? It no, looks- it's it's actually, it's hard to quantify. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in some in some ways, yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible overstatement. But in some ways, it's actually incredibly fitting because it became kind of, you know, a legend. I, I guess how you would think for a lot of stuff, like, I don't know how this snake pit really was you know or like the heart dungeon or 
you know, I've come to wrestle in different places like Arena Mexico and, you know, I've been in, in some like other places that, you know, the Tokyo Dome Cork and Hall. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of see what, what they live up to or why they are the way they are. And in some cases, it's like, okay, this is place is just kind of a building, but it's the culture narrative behind it. But yeah, it, it's wild, man. Like, <laughs> it, it is just a little hall and what it is. So in that way, it's an overstatement. But the aura that it had is, is uh, looking back, I don't, I, it, people are going to remember that forever. Like, it's, you can't really replace it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you participated in a couple of the, the Battle of Los Angeles there as well. They looked absolutely crazy to be just from an outsider looking in. They must have been absolutely mental when you were actually there wrestling at that. <laughs> Man, it's a thousand degrees. That's one of the things that's that's crazy about it is it's so hot in those buildings. I feel mm-hmm. like if, especially around that time, if you were on any of those shows and you could get through, you could wrestle a match that was 10, 15 minutes or longer, Mm-hmm. then you must be an incredible athlete because like I was dying some of those times it was it was insane and then the energy adds to it you know because then you have this like psychological like suffocating feeling because everybody has so much emotion that they're bouncing across the room mm-hmm. but uh but yeah it's uh you know it's, it's it's pretty wild especially those shows at the time and when you look back at the talent that they had and what they've gone on to do i mean it's understandable in retrospect because everybody who's coming through there is world-class guys mm-hmm. yeah i think it's still kind of seen as kind of like a bar of independent wrestling if you can do well in that tournament or you can win that tournament you're going to go far yeah it kind of took the place of what we used to see the super eight as i don't know if if uh, if you know the Super 8, but we had this tournament in Delaware every year, and it was called the Super 8 tournament. And when I was first starting out, so anybody that's kind of from that generation of like the late 90s, early 2000s, the goal was really to get on the Super 8 because that's kind of how the largest indie companies would kind of pick you up. And then you mm-hmm. could also get on like WWE's radar and stuff uh, like that as well. Like, I mean, I think the Hardy Boys did the super eight a lot of people did the super eight and uh since then i don't know that it has the same aura anymore it may have kind of faded around 2005 or six but uh it seemed like battle of la became that and that's a new springboard for guys and yeah it's 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 cool it's crazy i'm gonna need to look up some of that super eight stuff see if i can find some stuff online it sounds pretty interesting Maybe something there out there. Another part of your independent kind of journey before you went to WWE on even TNA, you were you signed a contract at, at the Ring of Honor in 2011. This is kind of around about a point that they were kind of hitting their stride. But you asked for your release, or you left the company a year later. What was it that made you want to leave after just a year? Um, it so it was really just a logistical thing because the company was still in a state of transition, and mm-hmm. they were kind of uh, getting into the realm where they were no longer a proper independent company. They were really becoming more of a mainstream integrated company with different platforms that they're working with as far as television and trying to, you know, build their schedule and and things like that. And so Mm -hmm. part of that was, you know, growing pains. And so some of the West Coast talent were having a hard time being scheduled as consistently as guys that were on the east coast because of just because of the travel and i just knew i had some other opportunities that i could do if i wasn't exclusive and i just asked them if um 
you know, mutually, you know, if, I, if I'm not that much of a commodity at the moment, if I can go out and just, you know, do some other opportunities and, and they understood. So it was, it was, they were actually really cool. They kind of helped organize me going to other places on, on the way out as well. Uh, looking back on it, is, uh, are you glad that you did that or is there any regrets with, with, with it? Uh, I mean, I never really regret anything. I, I've always had the mindset that you, you have to leave your own backyard if you're ever going to find an opportunity. Like stuff isn't going to find you. That's just the way I, I've always looked at it. Ever since I first started training, like I was saying, I would go in any gym that would take me because just being in my one gym, I didn't expect somebody to walk through that door and say, oh, this kid's working really hard. He's great. I needed to, you know, get with other people and, and learn new things. And and I took that approach with everything. One of my first big breaks that I had when I was a teenager was with what was at the time a WWF developmental territory, which is UPW. And UPW is where John Cena came from, Victoria. Basically, I was in wrestling school with John, and uh, but I was only a teenager at the time. But that opportunity led me to new japan which led me to cmll which you know when i came back from that the indies had boomed and ring of honor had started so i first went to ring of honor actually way back in 2003 and then tna and i was doing like uh stuff for tna as a 19 year old and getting this great exposure and i never settled down because you know you just in my opinion you you reach a point later in life where you need to settle down and put all of the things that you've gathered together it's like a big game of Katamari Damasi. <laughs> You're just this rolling ball gathering this stuff. But until then, you know, you shouldn't really sell yourself short and, and cut off your potential. So I've, I've never regretted moving on. I always thought it's better to move on before you're done in a place because you could always go back. Mm-hmm. But if you don't move on, then you get complacent. So, you know, I, I held up that same ideology even now I, I have that same ideology um but yeah i don't regret it uh, at all leaving ring of honor that that second time just because it was it was the right time and it was on good terms mm-hmm. both sides understood and i was able to do things that i would have otherwise missed the opportunity to do mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a good approach to live your life by not having any regrets and just looking forward you know so and it served you well but the yeah. you've had since then uh, you mentioned TNA there. That was one of the, the points that I personally first got some exposure to you when you were revealed to be the man behind suicide, like the, the suicide gimmick. Now, that mm. character, like Christopher Daniels, Frankie Kazarian, had been known to be behind the mask at that point in time, but you were the one who was revealed as that face. When was it you kind of found out? How much notice did you get that you were going to be unveiled as the, the man behind suicide? How long did I know that I was going to do suicide or know that yeah, they was were going to like, reveal, did they, reveal did they, me. Did they bring you back in just for that or had you been like back in the company for a while and they just that they asked you to kind of be the man to do it? I mean, it was kind of a sort of complicated little piece of business at that mm-hmm. time because uh, I had been in TNA often mm-hmm. on from 2003 or four until... I don't know, 2008 maybe. I'd come in every now and then, and and I was always wrestling as 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 the Puma character. Mm-hmm. And I remember in 2008 maybe, uh, whenever it was that they were uh, developing the idea for suicide. And <laughs> I remember Kazarian being so disappointed because he wanted to continue being himself, and he was building you know himself as 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 an entity, as, as a character all his own. And they had this idea for him and he didn't want to do it. 
And I remember him and Christopher Daniels and, and us sitting in the locker room and them arguing back and forth, not arguing back and forth, but just kind of like, I don't want to do this. And uh, they should just have him do it, referring to me because I was already in a mask and they had been for years trying to figure out uh, a steady role for me to play. Mm -hmm. So I would just be in TNA full time. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that would be kind of fun to do. And then, you know, soon after that, I, I left TNA again and I went to FCW and did some other stuff and went to Ring of Honor. And then years later, I came back and I came back as Puma. And this is when I left Ring of Honor and they, I came back as Puma and they had me on, I think, one of the pay-per-views. And then I did like a TV and they said, OK, you're here, but we're just going to have you sit for now until we think of how to uh, kind of put you into something full-time and i said okay and i remember sitting and watching they had these bumpers coming next week suicide returns coming next week suicide returns or whatever i saw them for like weeks you know like coming up suicides returning and i text the office and i asked them you know i don't know if you guys are still gonna just kind of swap this character between multiple guys but if you don't have somebody in mind i would like to do that and they said that's a great idea and then the next week I was suicide. So I kind of volunteered and I didn't think that they would go for it. And they just said, yeah, <laughs> you can do it. So I did. And then that was just kind of a runaway train from there because I think they just thought it would be kind of a, not a one-time thing, but a short-term thing. But they never had a guy that dressed like me in a suicide costume before. So once they saw what I was able to do, and it's not, and that's not a knock on like Kazarian or Daniels because they're amazing performers, mm -hmm. but I just think their style was not exactly what they had in mind for the character. So once mm -hmm. they saw the stuff that I could do with it, they're like, "This is the suicide we thought we wanted the entire time. Like we wanted somebody to portray it like this." So they loved it, and they just kept putting me in more and more matches with it. Before long, I won the X Division title, and. They wanted to take this step deeper and they, they said, you know, your real life story is, is a great story. We would like to tell it. It's not every day that somebody experiences the stuff that you have. We would like to have kind of the backbone for, for the character. And I said, sure. And that's kind of how it came about. It was literally every week. It was just something new. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the moment where uh, you kind of were revealed as suicide. Uh, Hulk Hogan was the man who brought you out. I must, looking back to you, your time in the was, 80s, kids. Yeah. That must have been a surreal moment, that. Incredible. I mean, this is like we were talking about in the beginning of this uh, interview. Like, he's, you know, he's the dude. Yeah, I, I grew up, he's Babe Ruth. I grew up watching him. He's Muhammad Ali. And so, my first ever TNA pay per view was in 04, whenever it was, that first Victory Road pay per view, their first proper one, right? And we're in the back in the locker room, which is like a wide open soundstage area. So, it's like, it's a huge, huge area. And because this was like a brand new event and all these people were associated with TNA, like at the time. And I remember sitting in the back with Christopher Daniels and, and Frankie Kazarian, and we were just watching these guys, our childhood kind of come in and out just to say hello or to talk some business. Like the nasty boys passed through and, you know, Jimmy Hart passed through and all these different guys, Macho Man passed through. And then this limo pulled up and it was Hogan and his entourage and they just came out watched part of the show said hi to some people and then left and we were just thinking man that is so cool like that's all cool <laughs> and so for us at the time we were young and we were just like man that's insane and years later like he ended up being the guy that i i basically just did promos with him for, for months you know and i was like wow this is this is such a crazy lesson in 
my wrestling career learning off of this guy. Yeah, as you said, after that, they kind of let you go off and get, you, you did your own thing within the comp. You had your run as Manic, and you were involved with James Storm, who we'd spoke to in the past. He's, uh, he's done a lot of stuff over here in Scotland with ICW, but you were part of his stable, The Revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, to myself and a lot of other fans, it was a stable that could have went somewhere, but it didn't quite go as far as it could. What was your thoughts on the revolution? Do you think it could have been much better than what it ended up being? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the general sentiment. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that was associated with it or just even saw it, like like in your case, you know. I enjoyed it. I liked the chance to do something different. I liked playing Suicide, but it was nice to be able to kind of, you know, like branch out a little bit and have a little bit more. It was challenging, you know, because I, I got to, you know, play a bad guy i got to talk a little bit i got to do some things i wouldn't otherwise have done and do some interesting like you know character stuff uh, but it did feel like a little bit of a uh, like motley crew you know like it, it was kind of <laughs> the types of different types of characters involved um had an odd fit and i think we did well to make it have an identity but it just it did feel you know kind of odd at times and it felt like uh, th- there was a lot of ideas that would be put on the table and, and, and they wouldn't uh, pull the trigger on it. So there was a lot of stuff that we would have liked to do. You know, we were pretty proactive with the group trying to make it bigger than it was. But, you know, it ended up not, you know, they just didn't want to tell some of those stories. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought it could have ended up being like a slightly different, like light version of the Wyatt family kind of the way it was going just without as not as far-fetched, but kind of along that line, you know, so... Yeah, like, I thought it had that type of vibe, or, like, kind of like the flock, you know, in WCW. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not as big, but similar idea. I think we could have gone a little further. Mm -hmm. But then 2016 came along, and we got to the the Cruiserweight Classic, and you were one of the the 32 participants announced for that one. Now, when I spoke to Noam Dar in the last year, and one of the things he said that kind of stuck out to me was there's a lot of guys who didn't actually know if they were going to be on getting full-time deals at the end of the tournament. Were you in that type of situation, or had you signed full-time with WWE before the CWC came along? Uh, I was under contract until Clash of the Champions, so I could have full-on went Medusa with the title if I wanted to. Uh, I think that was a misconception is because like, uh, I mean, obviously like it, the tournament for me played out the way it did and, and the social narrative, I think on it, uh, at least for like diehard fans is like, you know, they, they really wanted Coda and Zach mm-hmm. and because they, they had their own individual decisions to make that they, you know, started changing things and did other stuff. But I knew I was coming through in the end after the first round because they asked me who I wanted in the finals and I asked for Zach. <laughs> So, um, so I, I knew from the beginning, before they even offered Zach any deals, I already knew that they were going to kind of go with me, at least as far as that goes. And I didn't have a deal until, uh, I mean, at least a week after we were through with it. They kind of negotiated with me a little bit during the process. I had already had some standing offers from like Lucha Underground and some other stuff that I wanted to do. So I kind of told them I had to think about it. And I, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to stay there. At this point in my life and career, like WWE wasn't a bucket list thing for me anymore. Like, you know, I I loved it, obviously. Um, and obviously I went there and I stayed there and I had a wonderful last three years there. But, um, but you know, it wasn't really a priority to me. So I kind of sat on it for a little bit. So I, you know, I wasn't a sure thing for them at all. <laughs> I knew that they were interested. I just didn't know if I was interested, but not until I was, it was over. 
You mentioned there that you would have quite liked to have faced Zack Sabre Jr. in the final. What was it about that type that matchup that stuck out to you? Well, they kind of just asked me if I wanted Zack or Metallic. That's kind of the way that it, what it came down to. And right. I like them both. I know them both. I had met Metallic in New Japan prior to that because we were in the Super Juniors tournament mm-hmm. together. Uh, we were opposite brackets, but I, I knew him. And, and uh, I mean, it's weird because, I mean, it's kind of like going back to what we were saying earlier with certain guys from New Japan would see me and they'd say, oh, I look like I'm Rey Mysterio. And then other guys would see me and they're like, oh, he's like Sayama or whatever. For some people, that's a natural fit. Me opposite a luchador. And for other people, it's a natural fit. Me opposite a traditional mat wrestler. For me, I liked the idea of working with Zach just because, I mean, Zach and I go, go way back and I feel like that's a little bit more like where my heart is in like catch wrestling and mat wrestling which is funny because i don't look it i'm not a traditional like mat wrestler as far as the way i dress or mm. talk but like uh but that's really like where my background is and so you know i just i, I just kind of it was like a 50 50 thing and i just kind of thought zach would be a more fun match to do Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's doing some great stuff there, Zach. And from uh, a Brit talking here, it's amazing that he's going to be defending a British promotions championship at Madison Square Garden in, in a couple of weeks' time. So, oh, it's it's incredible. I'm so happy for Zach and to mm-hmm. see how far he's come. Because I remember, uh, you know, when he was younger and first starting out, and uh, we had a couple matches together, and he would pick my brain a lot about like how to make it work as a style because he didn't think he didn't have a lot of faith in himself at the time to like get people to understand it and for years he spent a lot of time being frustrated that people didn't understand what he was doing and i, I remember working with him early on and, and kind of because he wanted to have that sort of sound he felt like i kind of had that you know like a few years ahead of him just in terms of wrestling career i think we're pretty close to the same age but um but he, i always knew that he was going to be magnificent and he just had to just keep doing it until people could kind of recognize that that's what he's about and he's come so far and he's you know world class and for him to be in that position i'm not even a brit and i'm like (laughs) (laughs) i'm super proud for him that he's able to do that and like represent in that way because he's he's definitely earned it no definitely now going back onto the tournament the names that you beat in that tournament you had damat johnny gargano rich one kotabushi grand metallic which one of those matches was your favorite maybe johnny or maybe uh swan they i mean they were all pretty uh pretty unique i guess because i was telling all these different stories of different guys and i think that's sort of why it ended up kind of being on my shoulders like going through just because i think they saw my ability to do that with different people and that i could kind of like get the best out of those guys and not that they needed it obviously these guys are amazing but i think they just saw that i was able to kind of do that with anybody they put me in the ring with but those two were kind of my favorite i, I liked this the stuff with with johnny and i because it kind of highlighted a bigger story that is still going on mm-hmm. with him and Tomas. um and just to be part of that and have that match uh, and Johnny is similar to me, where he's got like a lot of mix of styles, so it's really a fun match to do. And then Swan and I are really good friends, obviously, and that was really cool because Shawn Michaels had just come back to the company as behind the scenes at that time, and that match was like one of his first assignments. So that was like kind of like another Hulk Hogan moment where I was like, uh, "Wow, that's, that's this, is, this is my that's this is cool. yeah, this is this is my literal hero, not <laughs> just the guy I grew up watching, but like literally my hero." Um, and he's uh, like, I have to main event a show 
and Mr. Main Event is like overseeing it, and this is his first assignment. And it's just it's so cool, like to have done that match, uh, which was as you can see is like really probably the most emotional match of those tournament matches that I had as far as the story that we told and to do it with him and you know he's become mentor to me now uh, and for that to have been the first moment where i got to do that just all of that together just that's one of my favorite ones yeah i mean what you were talking about there with telling stories that's what a lot of people liked about that tournament uh the fact there was so much stories being told in all the matches i think that's what stood out on that yeah tournament. and for yeah, for a lot of guys, the story was just them, their introduction to the world. And I thought everybody did a great job mm-hmm. of telling their stories. And then, yeah, every single show was must-see because everybody everybody was just killing it. Mm-hmm. Now, you were given the Cruiserweight Championship at the end of it. Now, to a lot of people watching it, the you that the winner was going to get that trophy. When did you find out that the winner was actually going to be the, the first Cruiserweight Champion in the company for so many years? Uh, when... Triple H came out and told everybody the winner is going to be the first oh, really? champion in so many years. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, they didn't have the belt in, in like the locker room or anything. They said nothing to us. I, I was literally in the ring, and I, I thought the bell was going to ring. And instead, Triple H's music hit. And I, I thought I remember looking at Metallic and thinking, and, and I think I looked at the ref, and I, in my head, it time slowed down, and I was like, man, is this a crazy, like, cruel joke? Is he just going to come out and pedigree everybody? And that's <laughs> like, like, was this... This whole thing just to set up Triple H's next main event run, like crushing the cruiserweight division. <laughs> and he came out and made this announcement. And well, there we are. I guess this is we're doing it. I guess we're doing it. So that's pretty cool. They added shock factor for both yourselves and the crowd. Yeah, no, I, I found out the same way everybody else did as far as that one goes. Everything else I knew. I knew I was, <laughs> I knew after round one I was going to win and I knew who I was going to wrestle and how everything else was going to go. But I didn't know about the title until that moment and I didn't sign a contract until like a few days later. Wow. Wow, that's 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 amazing. That is absolutely amazing. That one. Yeah. Uh, so that that, tw- that twenty four hour period from that second on was kind of crazy because I was like, oh wow, now I have this title. Oh wow, I got to sign this. Yeah. I mean, uh, moving post uh, CWC, there was such a buzz on the division. It made such a big deal about the cruiserweight starting on that first Raw after the CWC. Did you feel any or a sort of pressure? being that sort of initial face of the division as champion? Mm, not not really. I, I'm sure there's pressure there, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I've never been wired like that as a person. Like, I, I never get nervous for things. I don't get anxious. Sometimes I don't even get adrenaline for stuff. I've always just been very calm about things. So I don't really, I'm, I'm never really afraid of situations, I guess. So I don't, I don't feel pressure in that sense. I just figured it, you know, if I'm good enough to do this, then I'll do a good job. If it, if it doesn't work, then I wasn't good enough. And I, there's nothing I can do to help that because 20 years led to this. So if that would have been 20 years ago, if I'm not good enough for it now. So I, I didn't look at it like tonight is going to make or break me or, or any given night, because it's like either I can do this or I can't. And I remember when we, when the tournament was over, when Regal and Triple H came in and they brought the trophies in and Triple H put the uh, the title around my waist and stuff, he leaned in and said something to me. And, and all he said was, is that we have a lot of faith in you. So I, I never felt any pressure because, you know, they chose me for the reasons they did. And and it worked out OK, I think, because it, it was never be built around one guy. 
in mm-hmm. the first place because that that really hurts a dozen people that need to be introduced if it's built around one guy and i think we kind of saw that when we got to the period where we had like neville come in for example we all loved having pock to work with because he's an incredible performer mm-hmm. but from a creative standpoint to do the goldberg thing where we all kind of were lining up to lose to him that's when interest started going down because now all these people their first introduction to to these fans is basically we're all losers like <laughs> we can't beat this one guy mm-hmm. and then for for pock they just wanted him to go back to the other shows because he was doing so well and we you know we didn't we obviously didn't want to lose pock because he's so he's so we we all love him but creatively that it's just never it was never meant to be built around one person so i didn't feel pressure necessarily because i knew that i was going to have to pass the ball and, and we were going to have to work together so i was happy to just be in that initial hands um, and then i was happy to uh, to be the transition guy you know, mm-hmm. to help brian to help rich and then uh, and then to help pock and aries as well in their stuff like i was i was, I was just happy to be able to help out mm-hmm. what you said there about neville pack is actually perfectly moves on to the next question i had to ask you what was your thoughts on that type of initial booking the company had of the division were you quite happy with it from your own standpoint i mean i think that that's the first like six months to a year should have been how it was even like up to this point to, mm-hmm. to be honest because it takes it'll, it'll take a year for casual fans to understand you're even there and to understand who you are what you're about as a character and so normally and this is going to be kind of like a little bit of a uh, <laughs> a long kind of thesis but normally the process would be if you're coming from like nxt or fcw or something like that you're coming up as an individual let's say you're somebody like elias right and you by yourself get this introduction you're going to work opposite of somebody like chris jericho or somebody like that that has this equity built up and they mean something to the people and you're going to mean something to the people immediately because you're by yourself and you're going against this person and you're going to beat this person and then you get this springboard all to yourself that's typically what you do so in that environment you can build a roster around one person because most of the guys are well known so like if you go back to like 1993 that's a similar roster to like what 205 is where it's like you got guys on a one-hour show and you kind of just got one main champion which at the time was like say like bret hart right Mm -hmm. well it doesn't hurt razor ramon Shawn michaels diesel to line up and lose to bret because these guys all had a great introduction so they don't they're not hurt by that but for us, we did it complete opposite. There's a dozen guys that nobody's ever heard of before. And we all had to come in at once. And we were segregated. So we don't get to work with somebody who's well-known. We're working with each other. So it's going to take a long time to build that familiarity. So it, we kind of needed to play hot potato with the title so that people kind of get a taste of everybody. And so that we also look unpredictable. Because that's also what the reason the CWC works. Because you never knew who was going to lose and go home after every single show. Every single show was like, had to see what was going on. Because tomorrow somebody's not coming back. So in order to replicate that on a weekly basis for the Cruiserweight division, I think it was a necessity to kind of have where you had four guys at the top. Like me, Spanky, Rich Swan, maybe Cedric. And we were kind of like bouncing back and forth a little bit. Then you had that second tier with like Ali and Jack and, and you know, Nice and Gulak. And it's like people want to see them move up and then they want to see what happens to the top four and all that. 
So then if you start building it around one person, it slows down and people stop becoming familiar with these people because all they see is you you don't have the ability to win. So I, I think it was better if we would have kind of had more 50-50 because we just needed to uh, either be integrated into the other shows or mm. we just needed to be able to show that we could win sometimes, which is hard. Yeah, I mean, what you said there perfectly sums up what a lot of people think about the kind of 205 live show. Like, as good as as good a show it is, it kind of puts you like, you're kind of segregated from the rest of the roster. There's no real interaction. You're kind of just a separate entity, which mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people like. I mean, up until recently with uh, Ali going to SmackDown, there wasn't really a lot of, you could see guys actually moving up. Do you think that's a fair statement a lot of people have on the product? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think that, uh, well, one, I think some guys don't get enough credit. Like, the Bollywood boys immediately found a role with oh, Raw with <laughs> gender. And I, I think that's like, I know that it's not like they're going out and doing like, these like matches for the sake of doing matches and showing how great a wrestlers they are in the ring. But like they found something that's theirs and made it work and were integrated way early on. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Lucha house party moved up even before Ali did. And they're pretty much exclusive to raw. Now they barely do two five anymore. And I think they kind of only are on two five now and then out of necessity, mm-hmm. just because there's not a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. They deserve a lot of credit too, for finding, you know, something that's theirs, you know, and bringing it and being able to integrate into other shows. Mm. Um, and really all that is, is just stories that they can tell. You know, Ali's got a unique story that appeals to fans and everybody can kill it if it, anybody can move on to these shows, but it's just about finding those stories. And I think that integration, again, like you said, is, is really what was missing and kind of what hurt because from the beginning, they could have just separated us and put us all some on SmackDown, some on Raw. We still do cruisery matches, but we interact with all the characters but instead they segregated us and we still are and it's it's tough you know mm. did you see that as a the 205 live creation as a sort of negative did you see that as kind of like this could be what takes this division downwards or were you constantly optimistic as you said about all other things in your career uh, i mean i'm always optimistic because I, I always think that if you put your mind to it, you can find a way to make anything work mm-hmm. and i think that I've always been a believer in, uh, like, I've never understood people's gripe about, oh, these people didn't have enough time or this or that or whatever. Like, you could have no time and that's mm-hmm. worse, you know? So <laughs> at least if you have something, that that's good. And so at the very least, it was a platform for the guys to do what they could do. So I always thought, you know, if you just give me 30 seconds to walk down the ramp, at mm-hmm. least that's 30 seconds to walk down the ramp. That's going to, that, that's a chance for you to build some sort of connection with thousands of people that can grow and mm. and keep doing that. So if you have anything more than that, which they do, then that's a good position to be in. It's just, uh, you know, th- there is a very solid glass ceiling on it. Mm. Yeah, and another criticism a lot of people have in regards to the Cruiserweights is the fact that they're always on pay-per-view pre-shows, even despite the fact that 2018... A lot of people would admit that the Cruiserweights, 205 Live, were killing it with all their matches. What you were saying there about take with the time you need, do you think that's the same with the pre-show? It doesn't matter where you are on the card as long as you you put on the performance? I mean, I think so. Like, And I don't know really what changed. I know that like interest and viewership had like a steady decline. And I, you know, at a certain point, I, I do think that a lot of that was when they started, again, like centering it around individual people, like first first with Pac, then with like Enzo. I just think that that kind of creates this funnel 
So then there's the interest is going to drop just because you're not really watching a whole lot of guys. You're really only kind of watching one guy. Mm-hmm. And then that's kind of when everything was moved on to like pre-shows and stuff. I remember when I first started at in the position I was in, I think all of my stuff were on main cards on the pay-per-view. And yeah, I think I it's because right we then. had a good, we had a good balance of guys at that time. And I think that's why, because, you know, I was in like three of the main pay-per-views, but you know, Rich was on the main pay-per-view like that first match with him and Pac was on the Royal Rumble and uh you know I think me Rich and Brian had like a a pay-per-view match me and Brian was a pay-per-view match two of them were actually and I think having I think because it was a broader mix they were able to offer different stuff that felt in I guess in their eyes in my in my opinion they could still be doing this stuff on like matches that Buddy and and different guys are doing they're they're killing it so I I think they can be on the regular pay-per-view but I think in the eyes of the management they preferred when they had more flavors to work with, they would put it on the regular card. But then when it felt like it was only one story to tell, they, okay, let's just put it on the pre-show because we just got to get this one story done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the unfortunate thing for you now is that uh, in February, you were uh, you were released from WWE. Can you tell us much about how that kind of came about? Was it a big shock to you that you were getting let go at the time? No, not really a shock. And I had considered leaving a little bit sooner I was kind of going back and forth a little bit. I just don't, I don't really believe in quitting necessarily. And I I never liked leaving any of the other places. The idea of leaving always sucks. I I never liked to just quit unless, uh, unless there was something specifically I wanted to do. And this was kind of one of those situations because there's a lot of stuff I wanted to do that I couldn't do while I was still in WWE, which is nice because now I, I, I do have the freedom to do that stuff. But it really kind of started like a year ago. I was actually in the UK, oddly enough. Uh, we were in London for TV, and I just met with uh, Vince in his office, and I told him that I felt like I'm not really a commodity to him in the form that I am right now. I was just you know, a moves guy on a moves show, and, and that's not worth anything to him. And that I wanted to get back to what I was from the CWC, where I was you know, presented more as like a global character reaching out to the Filipino community, and I just I had something that nobody else could really offer. I felt like that's what my worth was to them. And he understood, and that the goal was to uh, find a way to get me back to that, and to kind of get me on have a platform that has a larger reach. You know, uh, obviously breaking out to the Asian markets and the TV out there and stuff. Being on a network show is not as beneficial as being able to say, okay, you could catch me on Raw on this channel on this time in your country or whatever. So you know, we went for like a year. It was, this whole last year was like, okay, we'll write some ideas and pitch some stuff, and we'll write some stuff, and we'll see what we come up with. We'll try to get you on a Raw. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just we figured, I guess Raw would be the show. Uh, SmackDown feels a little bit top heavy, so felt like Raw. I could have more flexibility and fit in somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you know, we just I would meet with them every other week or so, and I'd have new pitches and new stories. And I wrote a story man for everybody. I I wrote stories for me and. Elias, me and Jinder, me and Finn, me and whoever, just everybody on every show. And uh, they just didn't see anything as a good fit for the type of story they wanted to tell, or they just felt like some stories would interfere with other stories that they wanted to get to. And eventually it just kind of ran its course where they said, look, we don't know, we don't know what to do with you. And that was kind of where it ended up with Vince. He's like, I got a lot of, a lot of respect for what you want to do. You have a lot of ambition beyond just here and just being a wrestler most guys don't have that sort of ambition here and you got you have the balls to attack this but um i just i don't know where i can fit you in so i don't want to just put you back on the bench and i don't want to waste your time so if you want to do some other opportunities and go do it so 
So I mean, it, it was kind of expected. We just were trying to figure out a way to make it work. And so that I wasn't just going to be a waste of space. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a mutual thing as opposed to them letting you, just letting you go. Yeah, I mean, like I didn't, I didn't get in trouble for tattoos or anything like that. Like everybody. Thinks. Well, that's, that's 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 the rumor that's been going about the internet. It's like because I remember that I remember watching uh, that um, what was it, uh, the World's Collide tournament. I was like, when did TJ yeah, get yeah. tattoos? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, that, so that was that was funny because uh, around Survivor Series. Uh, actually, even before that, I don't know, maybe around this time last year, I asked for approval as as you would do to get a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Then what I wanted to do turned into artwork and everything. So I'm not writing like the F word or anything on me. So it's, you know, it's pretty easy stuff for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, OK. And then uh, it took a few weeks or so to get approval. They said, oh, you, you could you could start getting these done. So around Survivor Series, I started getting them done. I've been waiting for a long time. And uh, yeah, I mean, they saw me at well, work with tattoos every single week so if they were going to fire me they wouldn't wait six months to do it <laughs> and i was doing promos on two that were visible it's not like they weren't shocked so it's that's stiff i don't know how that rumor came about i think maybe in the eyes of fans because if you don't watch 205 consistently mm-hmm. it could be like how how in your case like one day you see me and the next day i have all these tattoos but in real life the office sees me every day so they mm-hmm. it's not like they were shocked by it they knew yeah they proved it yeah, <laughs> no, it's good to it's good to hear you clear that up. Absolutely, it's uh, always good to get make sure the rumors are not actually false, fake news, and all that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the the last day I was there, uh, that last SmackDown I was there, I met with Vince, you know, just over some more pitches and stuff. And he had asked me, he's like, "Oh, did you update some of your ink?" And he's like, yeah, "Like this, these ones look pretty cool, and whatever, whatever." Like, yeah, he he, he didn't have a problem with it, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's good. Now, you're not with WWE anymore. 2019 is a time where the wrestling landscape across the world completely changed to what it was five years ago. The question I ask is, what does the future hold for TJ Perkins in the wrestling business? Well, that's a good question. I've uh, not had this sort of flexibility in a long time. I had a little bit of free time between TNA and WWE, but not much. And other than that, you know, I've been under contract to one place or another for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years or so. <laughs> and I had a lot of non-wrestling stuff in recent years that I wanted to start working on. There's a, a screenplay I'm writing. There's a, there's some TV projects I want to work on. There's some collaborations that I want to do for certain things that I, all this stuff would not have been available to me if I was still in WWE. I tried to see if I could get it done, but you know, it just wouldn't be possible. So I get to do that. And as far as wrestling goes, I guess I'm going to be mum on some of the stuff just because uh, I'm still working on all the different places that I kind of want to land in. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I want to be able to kind of do it all. And uh, I have a really busy schedule that I haven't been able to announce yet. Something like, I don't know, about 40 or 50 appearances just in the next three or four months alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to put that schedule up pretty soon because I'm going to launch a new website and a new right. shop for it. So uh, I got a lot of stuff that I'm, I got my hands in. Oddly enough, the time when I'm supposed to not be doing anything, I'm, I'm busier than I probably have ever been in my life. <laughs> There's one promotion that people would ask the question about anytime somebody let go for WWE. <laughs> AEW has uh, has Cody in the box been on the phone? Or is, that, um, is that a hush hush? Well, I'll I'll just say this: the day that uh, uh, me parting with WWE was announced, I literally received a phone call from everybody—a phone call or a text. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm not going to say I talked to any one individual place because I literally have at least had a conversation with every single one. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in their case, if anybody's wondering, you should probably just ask them more so than me because I, I would love to, any of these places I would love to work, especially AEW. But, you know, they all have their own schedules and business model that they're building. And especially with AEW, I know that are very much emphasizing being able to introduce new talent and capitalize on on the indie wrestling boom that's happening now. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they have a lot more on their plate than just to worry about little old me. But, you know, there's been a little contact and maybe maybe something will come. Mm, interesting. And I'll, I'm only going to say that much. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, they, they still have a schedule to build and stuff like that. So it's going to take some time. So, you know, but yeah, if, if anybody, if anybody wants to know or if anybody, them, let them know, because they're, they're the ones that make decisions that need to, that need to hear from all the fans more so than I do. Mm -hmm. Everything. If I had a choice. Mm -hmm. From a British standpoint, what is interesting, I noticed the other day that you have been announced for an IPW show here in the UK. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's one of the few that kind of uh, got released before I could say all my schedule, but yeah, that's one of them, yeah. What's the chances of us getting to see more of TJ Perkins in the UK? We've got the likes of ICW up here in Glasgow, we've got Progress down in London. What's the chances of you ever see TJ Perkins at one of these promotions? Mm -hmm. Pretty good. I haven't nearly finished going through all of my unread messages in my inbox yet. So mm -hmm. my schedule is filling up as fast as I can read and I'm not done reading yet. So I'm, there's a pretty good chance. And all I really want to do is wrestle. I've been wanting freedom for a little while now. And now that I have it, uh, somebody asked me recently, they tweeted me, they said, is this the year, it was after I got released, they said, is this the year that I get to wrestle TJ Perkins one-on-one? -on -one? And I responded, this is the year the world gets to wrestle me one-on-one -on because -one, I'll wrestle anywhere. I want to do it all. So chances are very good. Mm -hmm. So if the likes of Mark Dallas at ICW was to drop you an email and pick <laughs> up the phone, you wouldn't say no? Absolutely not. Nobody gets a no from me. <laughs> but if you're listening, Mark, there's your shots. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think on that point, that's a good point to kind of start wrapping up the interview and all the questions there. TJ, is there anything that you'd like to tell the listeners maybe where you can find you on the social media channels, any upcoming appearances? You said you've got a website coming up. Yeah, yeah. Next few weeks, I'm hopefully going to be able to, to launch it. It's not anything fancy. It's pretty minimal. It's really just like a touring schedule and some simple stuff linked to a shop that I'm going to open up as well i don't really have a whole lot of stuff to plug i mean you could follow me i only have twitter and instagram i don't have facebook or anything like that at least not yet but you could find my socials at mega tjp and other than that i don't have a lot of stuff to plug i guess i just really want to say thank you because if you're listening thank you for listening and if you're following me thanks for that if you hate me thank you for that too because <laughs> at least you're a um i'm just grateful for everybody you know support or not because without everybody else watching i wouldn't be anything so I just appreciate all of that. And thank you very much for having me too. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. It's my pleasure. Listen, cunts, I don't care what the f*** you think you're doing. Whatever you think is more important with your life, you honking bag of d tips. You know what you should be doing? You should be going online. You should be subscribing. You should be listening to the back catalogue of Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet, whatever the f*** you're doing, that's what you should be doing. I don't care if it's your mum's birthday, I don't care if she's feeling contractions. Get on it right now! Sports Social Podcast Network.